It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is The Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join me on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. Today's date is the 25th of February and uh, I'll go straight into my personal update because I've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, it's been a very, very enlightening week. So uh, this week has been for me all about mindset realignment. I've spoken to a few people within the indie writing community and got opinions on certain upcoming projects I'm going to be looking at. Um, had some very, very, very helpful people who I won't shout out their names, but if you listen to this, thank you guys, you know who you are. Um, and I've got a very, very exciting few months lined up in which I'm going to basically be working on a massive fiction experiment modeling a release uh, uh, release strategy after someone who's been on this show formerly and uh, once I've got that in place and started getting the wheels in motion I'll definitely be reporting back and let you know guys know how it goes I think without teasing it too much I think it's gonna be quite exciting but I will say no more uh, or I'll say that I'm very very optimistic about what the outcome could be but I'll say no more for now and and just leave it there but uh, mostly yeah I've I've read a few different books this week um I've been reading uh, Paul Tremblay's Growing Things, which is a book of short stories, uh, which has a few gems in there and a few um, not so gems, to be honest. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. Uh, read Becca Symes' Dear Writer, You Need to Quit, which I'm 100% getting Becca on the show at some point because I need to talk to her. She's incredible. And uh, she was recently on the Rebel Author podcast. So if you want to check out a little bit about her and find out why she's so incredible, then definitely head on over and check that. But not before you finish listening to this one. Um, and I've literally just got off a two hour, well, hour and a half uh, Skype call with a bunch of fantastic guys as we look at dabbling in the realm of a D&D podcast, which I'm very excited about because if the rest of the campaign is anything like the first episode we just recorded, then there's going to be a lot of uh, goodies coming up. And it's just a lot of fun. I think um, for me, someone who has or, or is involved in two different podcasts, uh, weekly releases, and uh, there's always that pressure of making sure that they're out on a certain day to have a podcast. It's just a bit of fun is definitely something that I'm looking forward to and something that I'm uh, definitely having fun playing with. But enough about me. Today's guest uh, is Mr. John L. Monk, who is a fiction writer of post-apocalyptic, of sci-fi, and most recently lit RPG fiction. And uh, John John Monk is someone that uh, I, I was definitely excited to have on the show. Uh, I was going to say back on the show, but um, to, to speak to again, he came on the show for The Story Studio. If you guys want to listen to his episode, which was, uh, I want to say February 2017. Um, man, it's crazy how time flies. Uh, then just head out to the Story Studio and check out episode 26, which is John L. Monk's uh, previous interview. Um, but John's John's a really interesting guy. He's someone who came to my attention when I first heard him on the SPP, the self-publishing podcast uh, show with Johnny, Sean and Dave, again, about three, three and a half years ago. Um, lightning in the bottle success with one of his post-apocalyptic books. His sci-fi series was doing fantastic. Um, he's played around a little bit with uh, the ideal optimum times really between release dates and he's kind of been looking at how best to release books uh, to match 
his writing style because he's not he's not one of the traditional fast writers that you're seeing a lot of these this time he's definitely someone that likes to take his time who likes to put himself into a book uh, and he's someone who i definitely consider as uh, a fantastic writer i've read i've read uh, a few of his books and each one of them has impressed me so i was definitely glad to have him on the show some of the main things that we talk about we talk about uh, finding the ideal release schedules so like i mentioned he had a book in 20 or two books come out in 2017 uh, he's recently released three books, one after the other, in the rapid release schedule at the end of last year um, in his Ethans of Chronicle series, which are doing pretty well. Um, he talks about writing through the tough stuff as someone who's written in the post-apocalyptic genre. Uh, he talks a lot about how you get through those periods where even the co- your own content of what you're writing starts to drag you down and starts to feel a bit heavy and how you continue finding the inspiration and just, and just plowing on through um, and seeing the brighter side of that because... Let's be honest, writing certain genres can be quite difficult depending on which arena you're playing. And I know that speaking as someone who writes a fair bit of horror, there are certain scenes, there are certain days in which you'll be writing a lot of the dark stuff and it can sort of weigh you down emotionally and you find those ways to bring yourself back up. Um, And a lot about staying true to yourself as well. So there's a lot to take away from this interview. Uh, John Monk's a very honest guy, he's a very open guy um, and he's someone who I think has gleaned enough wisdom that you should definitely be listening to what he has to say. But a quick shout out to the patrons over at patreon.com forward slash great writers share. Thank you guys for supporting the show every week, making sure the lights are turned on, making sure the show continues to run. Um, No new patrons this week, but I will be announcing the monthly giveaway for March, which is something that I haven't done since the hiatus I took over Christmas. So from March, there will be a giveaway running. It will run across the Patreon page and the Facebook page. Patrons will get additional entries into the giveaway, so we'll get an increased chance of winning whichever book is going to be put forward. Um, Obviously, if anyone has any suggestions, then please do put them forward. Um, And uh, yeah, get yourself either into the Facebook page or the Patreon page and find out more about that. I am also on the cusp of putting out my first wad of merchandise, which uh, it's it's not even really for you guys, to be honest. It's it's for myself. I just want to wear my own product. So uh, I'm put together a line of thermoses i've got uh, mugs i've got notebooks i've got t-shirts i've got the whole wad of stuff so within the next few weeks i'll have some stuff in which if you want to go around and rep the great writer share brand um i'm going to put some quirky phrases and stuff on there as well uh, just check it out um i'll be putting notes about that in all the relevant groups so keep an eye out there speaking of the facebook group if anyone does want to go over and just check out what's bubbling in the cauldron over at facebook.com slash groups slash great writers share um, I've pulled from our list of new welcomees one of my top tips of this week, which is from the uh, one and only Angela Ackerman, who says, My biggest piece of advice is not to be in a hurry. Strong fiction takes time, and we need to be open to learning and invest the energy needed to make sure our very best work ends up on the page. So don't be afraid to seek out mentors, get critique partners, experiment, and challenge yourself to identify areas where you can grow. Better fiction means happy readers who become your superfans, and I think uh, no true words have been spoken. But without any further ado, let's dive into the reason that you're here, which is the interview with the one and only Mr. John L. Monk. John L. Monk is the creative mind behind such series as the Jenkins Cycle, the This Dark Ages series and the Chronicles of Ethan. His work has spanned the genres of science fiction, post-apocalyptic, with his most recent venture taking him into the genre of lit RPG. John lives in Virginia, USA, with his wife, Dorothy. A writer with a degree in cultural anthropology, he boldly does the dishes, roots out evil wherever it lurks, and writes his own stunts. John, welcome to the show. 
Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks. No worries. It's good to have you back. Uh, we were obviously talking a little bit before this. We spoke, it was literally three years ago. I was looking it up earlier on um, on the old the Story Studio feed. It was three years since we've last spoken. Um, and I won't ask you to go into everything that's gone on since then, but how are things generally? <laughs> um, let me see. I hate my job still. I'm not full-time, <laughs> not like you. I w- I'd like to know what full-time, like what, what, how much money I have to make to go full-time. Uh, if you ask my wife, it's about what I make now. Yeah. If you ask me, <laughs> I think we could be eating ramen noodles and, uh, you know, just going cheap, you know. <laughs> mm. No, it's definitely the, uh, the dream. And obviously you're, you're, make, you're taking steps to get there. You've got some, you've got some good stuff coming out. Um, I think last time we spoke was not long after you'd released Hell's Children and yes. you were on the cusp of writing Hell's Encore, um, which obviously that launched in June 2017, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it actually, um, it was actually, I really liked it. Um, it was a, a great, great follow-up, but I made a mistake uh, as an indie author and I wrote it a year after the first one took off. You know, people like the first one. It's uh, very close to 300 reviews right now. Um, you know, they're generally pretty good reviews. Uh, and if I had just followed up quickly, uh, then I would have been in such, such better shape. I might actually be making enough money now to quit according to my wife, you know? <laughs> well, that was one of the things that I wanted to, uh, to come on to because in this show, I, I tend to dig quite deeply into mindset, how people think people's process and everything else. Was there a particular reason that there was sort of that year gap in, in the release between the two? Yeah. Uh, when you write a, a story about, uh, it's kind of like, um, it's sort of like a Lord of the flies story where you have all these children and there's a lot of brutality. So when you're writing a story about kids, I hate to say this, it just feels weird to say, but kids killing kids uh, in a sort of world where there's no adults present to do you know, anything about it, it can kind of wear on you. Uh, it's a very, there's so, it's like you're walking on a tightrope. Uh, you go to the right, then you're, you're a barbarian author who likes the stories about children killing children. And if you go on to the left, you're not realistic. You're telling a story, a puff piece it's like a Disney story. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I had to walk right in the middle of reality and brutality. And uh, so that was a difficult tightrope uh, walk. And it's also you're, you're constantly thinking, okay, how's, how's this child going to kill that child today? And, um, and you're also trying to get your head into the minds of children and you're not a child yourself. So these are all very difficult things. So, you know, it's going to take a while to write a book like that. Yeah, there's emotional stress, there's uh, intellectual stress, and, you know, I still work. So that's uh, that's the other thing. And I also hold myself kind of to a high standard when it comes to the writing. Uh, that's not a slight against other authors. Uh, it's really just um, maybe I have, um, you know, like I have to be a little too perfect when I write. And uh, when you're being perfect, when you're putting out a rough draft, it's going to slow you down, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm not perfect when I write my rough draft as much as I try to be. I'm not perfect after it's published either, uh, you know, but it, uh, I try my best. No, that is something that I'm sure people who listen to the show regularly know that it, it's a fascination of mine at the, mid, at the minute, which is the the whole argument between sort of speed, quality, quantity, all that kind of thing, because that's it's definitely um, very much undecided in the indie game as to which is the right way to go. And obviously everyone has their own methods. Um, when it came to writing those scenes, like you say, that have sort of kids killing kids and all the sort of that brutality, which um, as someone who has read Hell's Children um, is delivered quite well. And I don't, I personally, I don't think there's too much of like 
thinking of the barbarian side. But how did you actually manage those moments where you were really in sort of a deep scene where it gets quite brutal? How did you sort of, um, I guess, balance that against getting the words down but not trying to sort of grind yourself down mentally? Well, actually, when you're writing a brutal scene, uh, when you're writing a brutal scene like that, the the words come kind of fast. But what ends up happening is, you know, you you sort of – you go back and forth on whether or not you're going to keep that scene in. Uh, have you read, have you read uh, hell's encore? It's okay. If you haven't, I haven't yet. No. Yeah. There's a scene in, <laughs> there's a scene in hell's encore that is so brutal and so soul numbing and uh, all the things, all the bad things that it's the, it's the scene that I almost dared. It's like I was cheekily daring the reader to keep reading or throw the book across the room. <laughs> it's so, it's not like the main character died or anything like that. No, nothing like I'm going to kill all my main characters like George R. R. Martin. Cause he made a lot of money. No, no, I'm just saying it's um, it's just some rough stuff. And uh, I went back and forth for a long time as I was writing that, trying to figure out whether or not I was going to keep it in. And if I wasn't going to keep it in, I had to replace it with something that would probably feel kind of like a bandage or a bandaid or a a patch or something like that in a story. And it would also just deflate from the quality of the story. Um, The ending of hell's children, as you remember, was sort of brutal. (laughs) It was brutal. (laughs) It was really brutal. Uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, like I said, the words come fast, but then there's this period where you're kind of like rewriting it and you, you water it down and then you build it back up and then you water it down and you build it back up. Ultimately, I think I always fall on the right side, which is write it true to kind of what your intent was, write the reality and never mind the bad reviews. Mm. Yeah. I think particularly in post-apocalyptic, you need that element of, of reality. I know that in uh, one of the books that me and Luke did, the, the rot, there was a scene in that which we we get a lot of, if there's any criticism at all, it's, it's for this particular scene. But at the time, it was very much like uh, it, it was. It just felt right to be in there. It was very much a part of. Um, spoiler alert for people who were thinking of reading it: the dog dies in a very horrific way. Um, but it was very much one of those moments where it was like, okay, this needs to happen in order for it to feel realistic and for it to roll on. And that seems to be a genre in which that's, I guess, um, uh, given a little bit more leniency towards, as opposed to potentially some other genres. Wow, you killed a dog in your book. I mean, we, we literally popped its skull between a man's fists. So, <laughs> Dude, that's like the number one thing. It might as well be a book called uh, Don't Kill the Dog in Your Book. <laughs> well, the good thing we did is we replaced it in the second book. Oh, yeah. It's got a brand new dog. It's we very... <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. that's very brave of you. I would, yeah, here's the thing. As much as I'm talking about brutality and children killing children, I still haven't killed a dog yet. I don't think it's ever going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to bounce back on myself now. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And then, uh, obviously, so hell's, uh, encore came out in June, 2017. Um, and you've spoken briefly a little bit about sort of, uh, gaps between releases. Um, and if my research is right, there wasn't another release until October, 2019, which is the start of your Chronicles of Ethan series in which you then released three books within three months. So can you give us a little bit of a background on how that all came about to be? Sure. I was just so burned. <laughs> I was so burned about the the lack of sales or the sales were, you know, 
they just, they weren't there for Hell's Encore. And it was because the readers had just forgotten about me. And I said, it's just not going to happen again. So I wrote three in a row and I didn't want the readers to forget me. And they're short books. They're about 55,000 to 65,000 words each. Um, And I wanted them to be pretty quick reads where you go boom, boom, boom through the series. So uh, I think I succeeded in that sense. But um, there was some, you know, lit RPG uh, is a little bit like fantasy. It wants a larger, it it has a tendency to want larger books. So I kind of broke a genre convention there and I got kind of hammered on that a little bit. Um, You know, and so, but that's okay. I mean, we're going to have an omnibus out, hopefully, hopefully in spring uh, for people who like audiobooks, I'm hoping it's going to be, it's something that's going to be about 18 hours of pure listening joy. <laughs> and for people who passed it up because the ebooks were a little too small, then they'll have, um, I think close to 180,000 words. So, um, that should, that should make everybody very happy. I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. So how did the switch come about in terms of moving over? Because I think in our last last conversation, we spoke a little bit about sort of moving over from genres and obviously you'd had the Jenkins cycle and then gone into um, Hell's Children and we're hopping over to uh, Lit RPG. How did that sort of transition come about for you? Well, yeah. Um, well, I do like writing post-apocalyptic, but there was this pressure to write a book three for like Hell's Children. Like, I wouldn't want to go and write some other post-apocalyptic novel without having created a third book in the Hell's Children, uh, this Dark Age series. Uh, so I sort of said, okay, well, then I just won't write a post-apocalyptic because I don't want to write about children dying and killing each other so soon after having just done that. It's a bit of a chore. It's a bit of, um, it's just a bit too much. I mean, I'm probably going to go back to it and finish it. But I got to recharge my batteries. I got to get some goodness and light in me before I sit down <laughs> and do that again. So I said to myself, what is it that I kind of want to do? And I thought about it and I said, well, I do like fantasy writing, but I don't necessarily want to do the world building that's required in fantasy. There's a tremendous amount. Now there's world building and there's a lot of world building in any book that you write, uh, including, you know, lit RPG. But you can kind of take it easy on like the histories of all the five lands and the histories of all the races and the magics and uh, you don't have to, you know, you, you don't have to do all that with lit RPG. You know, we, we all kind of know what it's like to play a video game. We know the tropes there. We've played world of Warcraft, uh, you know, EverQuest, all the things. So I said, you know, and the other thing is, is it, it's sort of, I said, you know, why don't I just write the book that I started writing in uh, the late nineties uh, in the late nineties, I wrote, I started writing a book about a guy who kind of goes into a virtual world. He goes into a virtual world where, you know, all your magical powers and stuff are sort of simulated by a computer for you. You go, pachoo and light and magic shoots out and uh, hits the monsters. And the only thing I was missing was the health points and the spell points and the mana and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but everything else was exactly kind of like, my envision, my vision of a lit RPG novel. So I said, and I had stopped, here's the funny thing. I stopped writing that book back then because the matrix came out and the <laughs> matrix came out. I mean, nobody was writing stories like this that I remember or doing movies like the matrix. So I thought I had this kind of awesome thing. And then the matrix comes out and I'm like, no one's going to want this. <laughs> They're going to say, you're just copying the matrix. Little did I know publisher was 
probably would have died to have a story that copied the Matrix because the Matrix was so popular. I didn't realize that <laughs> I was so naive. I didn't realize that that's exactly what publishing and, and Hollywood loves to do is just sort of do what sold last time, you know. But that's all right, you know. So I took uh, I took time off, uh, fifteen years off, I guess, to um, to learn how to write, and then I wrote my first lit RPG. Played video games my whole life. Um, you know, I understand those tropes. I, I, I'm not, I'm not a huge lit RPG reader. I, I did my research uh, just to make sure that I wasn't doing something that was too far off the mark. Uh, nonetheless, I did, I didn't hit that nail too squarely either. Um, you know, there's still a lot of John L. Monk in the story. Kind of, or he sort of wants to be almost a literary writer, but also a video game style story writer and stuff. The people who love my books, I absolutely love them. Um, and the people that don't don't like them, I guess they want a little bit more, you know, action, action, action. Maybe a main character that isn't quite so, what do you call it? Uh, maybe introspective, uh, old. The stories about uh, a future where old people retire to uh, sort of a virtual world of their choice. Uh, there's sort of um, there's a there's a medical procedure that happens where you kind of, you know, transfer your consciousness from a body to a computer. We've read those types of things before. And I wrote my own where basically you have, uh, you have the computer brain and the, the flesh and blood brain. And you take layers of consciousness. Uh, now they're both exactly equal, <laughs> but you take layers of consciousness and you shut them off in the human brain and turn them on in the computer brain. And you just kind of do this step by step by step by step thing, turning off one layer and turning it on there, uh, while the human, the main character, feels as if it's entirely seamless. So there's not that whole shoot this person in the head, he's dead, and then turn that computer on and now he's alive, you know? Mm. No. And um, so I thought that was kind of cool. That was hated. That was hated by a big fan in Lit RPG. They didn't want that. They they thought it was um and I say that, I mean, it's uh, the guy who does the Litter RPG podcast. He didn't like that too much. But other people seem to have liked it. So <laughs> there's, uh, there's definitely a lot of mixed reactions to the stories. Um, I encourage anybody out there to pick them up, uh, obviously, because then I get paid. But uh, <laughs> I really hope you like them. So. Yeah. I Because uh, I've spoken to quite a few people that do um, the Lit RPG thing. And I was in a conference last year um, and hung out with a lot of sort of the Lit RPG guys, including uh, it's... Dakota Kraut from Mountain Dale Press that you're signed with for that book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's he was a previous guest on the podcast. And I think the 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 general view that I've heard from lit RPG readers is they're very um I guess sort of there are a lot of parallels between how they review and how they comment on forums in terms of like the the people that love it absolutely love it and the people that hate it absolutely hate it. And it's really yes. difficult to try and get a full consensus of people that absolutely love what's going on in, in the lit RPG genre. Cause I think, I mean, I don't know too much about it. So you might be able to sort of um, say a bit more, but I think there's still, because it's quite a new genre still in terms of everything else out there, it's still really trying to find its feet as to what its subgenres are and what it's, what its main tropes are within, within that category. Yeah. There's a, it seems like there's a, there's a almost like a religious war out there for the soul of lit RPG for the people who are going to say what it absolutely is and what it absolutely isn't. And you'll see that in the reviews from me and any successful or unsuccessful lit RPG writer, the reviews are either really, really harsh or really, really friendly. 
And, uh, and when they're harsh, it's always like, this is not lit RPG. This is barely game fiction. This is, mm. uh, those aren't, those are 19 sided dice. Those aren't 20 sided dice. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get a lot of that, uh, and that's fine. It actually, it, it sort of caught me by surprise because mostly in the past, you know, my books, uh, you know, like the, the most awful reviews I suppose I got was this is not realistic, you know, and I'm like, Oh, you got me. It's not realistic. And now it's like this person should just burn their computer. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now it, it seems to be um, an interesting model of uh, transferring people over into, into the digital world. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in with uh, Mountaindale Press and how that all came to be as well. So I think that, that could be quite an interesting story. Well, let me see. I don't know if it's an interesting <laughs> I was talking to a buddy of mine who uh, is friends with uh, the folks over at Mountaindale. And uh, I didn't know that, you know, he was a big lit RPG fan. And I was just sort of saying, hey, I'm doing this whole lit RPG thing. So, like, oh my God, really? Let me read it. So he read it uh, and he loved it. This is nice. Um, and uh, he hooked me up with them. He just said, hey, you got to read this guy's stuff. He was raving about it. So Dakota, I think Dakota was about to catch a flight. Uh, and he down, he, I guess I'd given the Moby to somebody. I think I gave it to my friend. I gave it to him. Dakota read it on the flight, read it straight through. Absolutely loved it, um, which is great. I always encourage that kind of thing. And then, <laughs> and then we got on the phone and we started talking. And he's like, you know, uh, so, you know, this is kind of who we are. And uh, if that's something you'd be interested in doing, then let's move forward. I don't think I can get into it too much more because of non-disclosure stuff. There was this mm. secret blood ritual rite that we had to do. And, <laughs> you know, there was summoning of beasts. Because <laughs> I think it's interesting that, uh, so you, you started the Lit RPG ahead of, um, obviously, this this interaction with uh, the guys at Mountaindale Press. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know, how is it working with uh, an independent publisher? Because I'm finding... Um, that we're in a bit of a, a spin in the independent community in which obviously you've got a lot of people trying to do it for themselves. You've got a lot of solo authors. You've got obviously the traditional way, which obviously were the two routes before, but there now seems to be this um, sort of influx um, of people who are creating these story studios who are uh, becoming independent publishers and taking on those other authors. Have you found that experience quite smooth? Have you found it? How, how have you found sort of being taken into that route? Because all of your books before were self-published, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And I'm not, I'm, I will be self-publishing in the future because I'm not always going to write lit RPG. Um, I'm not sure if I will necessarily go with another publishing group. Uh, I can't imagine anybody being better than Dakota and Mountain Mountain Press. They are great quality people. Um, I mean, I just can't say enough. I can't say too much because I would be talking about how they do their business, I suppose. Mm. But um, they're always available for questions. They're always there. They pay promptly. <laughs> they, uh, they they uh, release lots of documents to you showing how they do breakdowns of everything. Um, they go over um, all the steps in the process with you uh, uh, as far as cover design and audiobook narration and editing and all the things that you'd want from like, I call them a small press. That's, that's kind mm-hmm. of how I think about them. And uh, so they're just absolutely quality people. And I can imagine you know, just because of the nature of, of people and the success rate of businesses, that there are small presses out there uh, that, you know, cater to indie authors kind of pulling together and stuff. Um, I'm not saying Michael Anderley's group is like that. I'm just using him as an example. He's sort of 
one of those. Uh, he's like he's like Mountaindale. So imagine there are people, there are groups out there. He's apparently a really good one, but I can imagine there's some really bad ones out there, and I would just hate to get hooked up with a group like that. So I think I got lucky. It was a real it was a real trust fall, you know, with these folks, and uh, they, they they caught me before I hit the ground. How about that? <laughs> and what was it that actually brought you over into saying yes to that agreement? I mean, obviously, we don't have to get into specific contract and stuff, but sort of, was there any points in when that offer was put forward to you where you were thinking, I, I, I might take this myself, I might, I might, I don't know whether or not to do this? What was the sort of the clincher that, that got you over? Well, really, I was looking for reasons to say no, I think, <laughs> because they were, the, everything they said was the type of thing that you want said. You know, uh, you know, you have all this power, you have all the, you can leave at any time, you know, uh, the money was really, you know, good. I can't really talk about the specifics on that. Uh, there was nothing in the, nothing that he said was bad. And I'm just, I was just sitting here because I'm a suspicious guy and I just met these folks looking for a reason to say no. Um, but I think what it came down to for me was that I'd spent um, a good I actually started writing this, these, this series of very short books in 2017, uh, way too slow. I wrote them way too slow. Um, I wasn't writing every day, so let's just be honest about it. But, you know, that was a long, that was a large chunk of time. I mean, we only have so many heartbeats in it, you know, and uh, I wanted to make sure that I put my best foot forward with these books. And I couldn't think of a better group of people to go with. You know, they have the marketing, uh, you know, their books are great. Everything about them, you know, is is really popular right now. And I thought uh, the worst thing that happens is, you know, I do better than I would have had I released kind of on my own. So it was sort of a no-brainer at some point, And I couldn't think of a reason to say no. And I, I jumped on board, you know, full throttle. Uh, I was probably way too helpful. <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> here's this. And hey, here's that. And, uh, you know, can I do this for you? I'm like, would you just shut up and let us do our thing? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was probably a little bit too much of an indie minded person. Um, and I, I did a lot of apologizing and, 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 and overhelping and I'm learning to cool my jets all right, and, and, and chill out and let them be the pros that they are. Um, and they were really patient with me, you know? Yeah. Cause I think that's the thing that I find really interesting is I've, I know a lot of people who have had experiences with small presses where it's gone completely the other way and there's not really been, what they expected, you know, rights have been sort of caught up in the tangle and everything else. Um, but like you say, there is this, this wave of people who seem to seem to care, seem to have their, their shit together. I think we're, we're in a point, like I say, within the indie timeline now where it is getting to that point where people are so on it and they understand so much what the bigger publishing houses know, but they can also work better with some of the, the smaller, the smaller um, places as well. Yeah. You just, it's all about trust. You got to be, I mean, imagine one of the things is survivability. I hate to get gruesome, but you know, heaven forbid something happens to Dakota and Danielle. I have to wonder what happens to me, you know, uh, who put, who, this is terrible, right? But who sends out the checks, you know, mm. uh, how do I, uh, how do I get it off of Amazon if they're not going to do that anymore? How does, mm. there's all these types of things. And, uh, you know, so, when you go with a company, when you find a, a group that is going to publish for you, you want to make sure that they have uh, all the infrastructure in place to take care of that. And Mountaindale does. So, mm. Yeah, I am <laughs> the reason I'm sort of 
poking this point quite a lot as I'm selfishly in my head looking at um, ways in which I will in the future be starting a small press. So I'm quite excited about that. But okay. moving ahead, one thing that I'm sure that people are quite hungry to know is how did the three quick releases compare to sort of the previous launches? Um, well, that's the thing. So I, I think I might have had lightning in a bottle with Hell's Children. It, it exploded. Um, I did very, very well. I did better with Hell's Children than I did with the first book, uh, Mythian, which came in at 55,000 words. Um, it also launched, Mythian launched day one with a really negative video review from uh, the guy from the Lit RPG podcast. So he didn't really like it. Um, he th- I mean, he thought it was, I guess, okay. Probably was the, the best thing he could do. So it didn't launch with its best foot forward. It was sort of a, sort of a, a rough launch. But, you know, it got up into the top thousand and it stayed there for, you know, I'd say about a week. And then, uh, you know, kind of went down, went down, went down. So for maybe the first three months, it was sort of, um, I think, in the top uh, two to four thousand jumping around. Then the book two came out and it, it had a similar sort of uh, sales rank history. And then book three uh, with some drop off along the way. Uh, whereas Health Children... You know, it was you know, it just exploded, but there was no book two to kind of compare to my uh, my Mythian adventures. You know, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I mean, that's I think overall it was. Uh, I would say I would say I'd give myself a, maybe like a a B minus as far as my my launch, and it was all me. I mean, it was really there's probably I pro- I probably did a little a uh, little too much. Um, you know, Ethan was sort of a depressing character. He was a, he's a grouchy guy. He, he didn't like games. I mean, you're, you're writing a book for people who like video games and the main character hates video games. <laughs> uh, you're writing a book for mostly younger people. And the main character is a 70 year old uh, retiree who's uh, going into the video game world uh, to find his, uh, his wife who died in the last five years. One, one, one reader told me, yeah, it's really good and everything, but, uh, it is the most depressing thing in the world to get into. I'm like, what are you kidding me? There's jokes and stuff. Uh, <laughs> gotta hang in there, you know? Mm. That's one thing I quite like about uh, the, the stuff that you're sort of putting into the books is that there is that element of you have to have what is John L. Monk in there. And there seems to be this sort of like, uh, not depressing, but this sort of <laughs> this like grittier element of, of reality within the books. And I think finding an angle like that that's different to that genre um, obviously could be a risk, but at the same time could sort of pay off really, really well for people that might want something a bit different within that genre. I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here just because I'm curious. The last time we, um, the last time we talked, you said that you read Hell's Children and I was actually really shocked and amazed and, uh, <laughs> flattered. Did you read, did you read Mythian? It's totally cool if you didn't. I haven't, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I did think that would come up <laughs> to me. I was like, ah, oh, probably should have read that one ahead. Yes. But, uh, oh, no, you shouldn't have. Because, you, <laughs> you know, you have to write and you have your, these businesses and, uh, you know, you have to deal with Brexit and everything. I, 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 <laughs> you're, you're a busy guy. Yeah, well, I've got a different. Uh, I was speaking to a different author each week, so there'll be a lot of different types of books. Which I'm a fast reader, but it's also half term this week for for my son. So I've been spending a lot of time with him. <laughs> you couldn't possibly do it, but I, I guess I just asked you because then I could say, "Hey, remember that part where kind of like that was going on?" You know, mm. everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a uh, Hell's Children was definitely. It, I I honestly mean it. I'm not just saying that because obviously you're on the show, but it was obviously it, it's one of my favorite post apocalyptic books. 
Wow. Did really enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me more about my eyes. <laughs> but enough gushing. Um, so obviously three books come out within three months. How long did that look in terms of the timeline of writing those three books? Because obviously people listening might think, oh yeah, three books is very, very, it, it's quick to sort of rapid release them. But what was the sort of reality of how long it took to write one, two, and three for you? I, I know you said there were slightly shorter books. Yeah, the shorter. Well, like I said, I started writing in around, I think, September of 2017. And I released them in uh, October of 2019. So, you know, that's two years to write 180,000 words and get them all edited and everything else. Uh, But, you know, it was sort of, there was these, there were these moments of really, really good uh, word counts, I guess you would say, uh, interspersed with periods where I didn't touch the book. Uh, the mm-hmm. book. So I could have written it a lot faster, but you know, it's a slog. I, I told myself I wanted to write three books in a row. You know how hard it is. It's like you just finished book one and then you can't release it. You want that immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. You're like, I've got another mountain to climb. I have to climb this other mountain. I've got to write <laughs> beginning, a middle and an end. And the end had better be satisfying. The story had better matter. Um, it's going to have to have highs and lows and depth and and, uh, and it's got to make people's heart race and it's got to be funny and interesting. And I've got to do it two more times. Mm-hmm. It is just, it's, that's kind of a slog. Uh, I really hated the process of writing three in a row. So uh, unless you folks out there like slugs, <laughs> you know, don't do it. Just, uh, can I also just say about Hell's Children? We're, we're going to keep going back to my, uh, to my better days, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, this is a very good day. Don't, I'm just joking around. Um, but in Hell's Children, I did not release it as a series. Uh, it, it did extremely well. Um, I think I'm, for me, this is well, okay? I think Lindsay Broker just would laugh at the numbers I made. But maybe in the first couple of months, I made about $25,000, right? That's, for me, that was huge. And it also very personal because I had to use that money to help pay for my wife's uh, cancer treatment. And she's doing great now. So uh, it came just, just when I needed it. The point is, you can write standalones and make a ton of money, okay? You can make good money. If I wrote a standalone called Hell's Children and followed it with a standalone called, you know, like the guy at the end of the world, and it also made $25,000 in two months, and I follow that up with, you know, uh, the day everything went dark, and that made $25,000 uh, or something, I could probably make a career out of this with just standalones. Um there you go. So you don't have to necessarily write a, a series all the time. Yeah, it's definitely uh, contrary to what you you hear a lot. And I think it's um, it, it's good to hear that the standalone still does have some kind of merit. And I know there are people out there doing that, but I think the people at the minute that get a lot of the, the circuit time, a lot of the voice time on, on podcasts, on sort of shows and um, like online forums and things, does seem to be the serials that seem to be the, the loudest voices among people. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what it is. Uh, the algorithm, you know, the cool thing about writing a series is that, especially if you write them every 90 days, is you're always in, you always have a book that is either in the hot new releases, which is a 30-day process, or that sort of 90-day cliff where mm-hmm. you're still hot, you're a warm new release for 90 days, you know, after between 30 and 90 days, and then you drop off the cliff, okay? So if you're writing a series, uh, you'll always have a book in the series that is always highly visible on Amazon. 
but the same can be done with standalones. You know, I haven't, obviously, I obviously, I have not written three standalones in a row to prove it out, but Hell's Children was a standalone until it became a, um, until it became a series and book two did not do that well. I mean, it got, it actually got way better reviews, but people forgot all about it mm. and that's not a good thing. So, so how, how has your writing process changed over the last couple of years? Cause I know you said, obviously there are, there are periods where you, days where you don't write some days where you do write. How, how does it look for you on sort of a typical day of a week? So what I do is I wake up super early in the morning between five and six. That's super early for me. Mm-hmm. And I pack everything up. I probably set the, I set the coffee up for my wife uh, to kind of go off because I never do it the night before. And I pack everything up and I go over to like Pete's Coffee or Starbucks, right? And I order my stuff. I sit down. I do my very best not to go and open up any social media. I'm going so far as to shut off the Wi-Fi. And that's where I write. That's where I do my best writing. If I write at home, I'm way too likely to sit there and, and look at the news or check Facebook or anything. Mm. Um, and um, I usually, at the start of every chapter, I put up in brackets at the top what I want that chapter to do. Um, and, uh, and then I write towards that kind of goal. And I always consider it really successful if I put three things at the top and I only get one of them done because that means I get to write two more chapters. Hmm. And so it's like, you know, uh, you know, making making small things big is kind of like how I look at it. The one sentence might be, have the main character um, get on the boat and find the clue. Okay. So that's, that's a small thing, right? That's a, that's a sentence. It's one, I couldn't just write that as a chapter. So I start writing the chapter about, you know, getting onto the boat. And then I get to the end of the chapter and I go, but he didn't find the clue. All right, cool. <laughs> that's the next chapter. Okay. Mm. So it is, it's making small things big. That's kind of how I like think of it. Um, other people say, yeah, it's going by an outline. Well, I outline as I go. There is a sort of overarching outline, I guess, as I sit down. I want to know where the story is going to eventually be. I don't want to write myself into a corner, but I do not do a detailed outline. It's literally half a page of um, beginning. A man follows his wife into a video game like reality. Uh, two, man levels up, acquires power, power meets friends has uh has second thoughts uh sticks to the plan three uh you know man overcomes obstacles finds wife that kind of thing it's mm. a pretty bare bones in terms of like not even giving the character a name at that point exactly yeah the names uh names come later it, um for, for except for the main character all my uh, all my main all my names are uh whatever i think of like really quickly like brian his name is brian <laughs> I don't go, Oh my God, I need it to be uh, this or that. Now, sometimes I do, you know, um, my villain name, I had a real hell of a time with, uh, the bill, the villain's name in Mythian is Cypher, right? Nice. Um, which I thought was a pretty cool name. And, uh, and I actually got that name from a friend of mine who was writing in horror. And I'm like, dude, I found out that the main character name I had glitch is a major, major title name for a bunch of lit RPG books. Uh, glitch is on there, like the, you know, glitch this and glitch that it's a, you know, I couldn't use that without people going, you're ripping off another lit, lit RPG book, mm. but that was the main character. Oh, sorry. The, the bad guy in the story. And I, 
I, I was at a loss and I was struggling for weeks trying to come up with a better name for it. And then I just said, Hey dude, I want to name him Cypher, but you named the guy in your story Cypher. Are you going to get mad at me? And he's like, no, dude, take it. <laughs> it's totally different, different genres. Go for it. Yeah. Now I think villains are always, like you say, names for general people. I'm, I'm very much the same as you. I'll just, whatever comes at the time, that'll be what I call the person. But there seems to be, with villains, it needs to have some kind of injection of notoriety or there needs to be like an edge to the name just to give it that little bit of extra um, villainy, I guess. Yeah, like Dr. Evil. It's not, <laughs> it's not Brad. You know? It's not Hugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, has that process changed much for you in the last couple of years or has that always just been sort of the way that, that you've worked and that's kind of what works for you? Yeah, it, it kind of is the way. I mean, I've tried to I've tried to do the heavy outlining stuff. I recently went, read a great book by Terry Brooks called, uh, it's like, sometimes the magic... Uh, Sometimes the ma- I don't know something about the magic. So I read his book and he got me on to outlining. He said, "Yo, yeah, this is the greatest thing in the world." You know, he really, really sold me on outlining. And I was, man, I was going to sit down and outline, and I was just like, "This sucks. I'm not outlining. This is crazy. I'll, I'll do a very spare outlining and at the beginning of every chapter. I say what I want that chapter to do. I've done that since Kick. Uh, Kick was my very first book. Worked for Kick. And uh, so I guess you could say I'm a pantser or discovery writer, as I think Brand, uh, other people call it. Brandon Sanderson likes to call it that. So mm. he's calling it that. It's got to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. See, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a good point because I, so I started writing 2015 and I, I was very much similar to how you are now, sort of discovery writing. I'd put like a couple of things, maybe a bit of uh, an exoskeleton as to where I want the story to head, but nothing ever that detailed. And then I think I got caught in the trap of over time, just read this book, need this outline, read this book. You've got these five main points. You've got to read this book. You've got seven more points of different things that you want to do. And I'm now at the point where I'm finding that I'm almost rediscovering my original writing process because yeah. there are elements of writing that I'm not enjoying so much anymore because I've gone very, very far away from what I was originally writing and why I started sort of on how I was working in the beginning. So I, I think you can easily get bugged down by all these different ways of how you should be writing. Um, and particularly I know people that write pages and pages about outlines. Um, I think did I, I hear something the other day about James Patterson's outlines, like 15,000 words. Oh my God. I'm like, yeah, that's most of the book. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I kind of look at outlining as like um, outlining is sort of like um, writing to an outline is sort of like coloring. Mm. Like a coloring book, you're filling in the color. And um, and discovery writing is sort of like drawing. You're just sort of doodling and you're making eyes and cool nose and a mouth. And I've always found drawing, I guess, more fun than uh, than coloring. Mm. Um, but Brandon Sanderson has, a, has an interesting way of looking at it too. Uh, and it's a little bit discouraging. He said discovery writers have the tendency to have have really, really great characters and, and fun stories and terrible endings okay? <laughs> yeah. and outliners have really good endings uh that just everything is just tied up and um and the uh and the characters and stuff have the tendency to be more wooden and of course he's doing his very best to make sure that that doesn't happen to him uh, he's an outliner so and you can tell because his books are just tight mm-hmm. they really are uh mythian uh, let's talk about me no <laughs> <laughs> Mythian, I mean, uh, I mean, you're here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Now, a lot of people didn't like the ending to book one. I loved it. So those people are wrong. <laughs> Two had a great ending. But I will say one thing. I was extremely, 100% ultra pleased with the ending of the series. Uh, I was just um, uh, very, you know, you know when, you, when you've just wrapped it up so beautifully. And coming at this as a discovery writer and finding out that my endings are supposed to suck, I feel almost like, yeah, all right. So, uh, <laughs> I am the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sitting here obviously bragging about my own books and stuff. But I, I think you've heard me before. I already said it wasn't like, you know, I didn't hit the genre squarely on the head, you know. But I think that anybody who goes into it, I think they're going to like the ending. Mm. Yeah. You heard it here. Check out his books. Are there more to come within that series itself? Or is that as, it for Mythian? As a matter of fact, there is. I'm actually writing a follow-up story. Now, the first three books, it's done. That series is done. You never, I'm never going to write a fourth book of that series, but I'm writing a book about a necromancer that was hinted at on the very last page of the third book. Uh, it's a story about a, uh, a necromancer named Howard. <laughs> so, and, um, you know, it's, I'm at about 54,000 words. I want this story to be a bit bigger than uh, the three books. I want to hit those genre conventions a little bit more squarely. Mm-hmm. A um, little bit lighter. Nobody's dogs get killed. Nobody's <laughs> die. Um, you know, he's not a grumpy old man. Yes, he's a 70-year-old guy, but he's young at heart. And uh, we don't ever hear about how physically old he is. Um, it's not like a big deal. Uh, uh, unlike um, in Mythian, it was a big deal because you're introducing to the world. Mm. So, yeah. And it's a building I, upon that series. Yeah, it's like, a yeah, lot of action, a lot of action, a lot of fun moments. And longer. I'm thinking 80 to 90K. If it goes longer, yay, that'd be cool. Because, you know, people want to keep reading. They don't want to leave the world. They think our world sucks. They want to be in the, in the book. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can't blame them sometimes. Nice. My, uh, one, one more main question for myself before we jump into one of our Patreon questions. Um, why do you write, John Nunk? Um, for like uh, the Lamborghinis and the ladies, I guess. <laughs> I hear you get those. <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm married. I would get yelled at for that. Uh, how do I write? I've always wanted to write ever since I was a kid. So, and I was writing stories when I was a kid. So uh, it was never a money thing until I got into IT. And then I'm like, I'd love to be able to write and make enough money not to have to work in IT or, or for anybody. Uh, I think every author out there listening, well, you can't say, you, know, you can't say absolutes, but darn near every author out there listening, they want to quit their jobs. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what keeps me going. This idea that I could go full time writing, doing the thing I love to do, which is creating something. Uh, and the idea that there would be something left behind after I'm, after I'm gone, you know, uh, whether there's an afterlife, I don't know, but there's going to be some books left behind. Yeah, exactly why I do it. Uh, okay, over into our Patreon questions now. So uh, these questions have been provided by the patrons over at www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. Uh, and the first one is from someone who you may be familiar with, which is P.T. Hilton, <laughs> who says, would you rather fight Bruce Lee in his prime or an elderly grizzly bear? <laughs> uh, P.T. is an incredible writer, by the way. If you haven't read his books, uh, you're missing out. Start with Regulation 19, in my opinion. Okay. And read it. Oh, that's a guy who can, he can finish the series, by the way. <laughs> His three-book Deadlock uh, trilogy is amazing. 
All right. So enough of uh, enough kissing Kitty's <laughs> ass. Uh, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Lee, is Lee prime. in prime or an elderly grizzly bear? Well, I could probably kick Bruce Lee's ass. I'm a lot bigger than he is. And <laughs> I just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I saw how easy he is to beat up. <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet, uh, Brad Pitt throws him across a kind of a, a courtyard into a, you know, into a car and leaves a great big dent. Incredible. Uh, right. So a grizzly bear of any age is going to kill me. So uh, I'll, I'll fight Bruce Lee. Uh, you know, he'd just bloody me up probably if he won. He probably would win. I'm kidding around here. I'm out of shape. <laughs> so there you go. Nice. Uh, what is your top productivity tip or the go-to habit that keeps you on track? The top productivity <clears throat> tip is just to make sure the first thing I, I do every day is writing because everything else will push it away if I do that first. Um, I'll give you a second tip. Is, uh, is a tip that I got from Terry Brooks in that book is fantasize about your stories. Don't just think about them with the intent to like write the next page. Sit there wondering about them. Wonder about the people and what their hair color is and what jokes they would laugh at and what the things they like to eat. Just And think about it just for the joy of thinking about it. And if you do that, uh, you'll find that you can't shut up. The words will just start flowing. And if you forget to do that, and you forget that that's what you got to do, you'll find yourself in periods, or at least I will, of writer's block, which is kind of a terrible place to be. And we all hear the thing, oh, writer's block doesn't exist. You know, I used to think that, uh, but I don't know what else you call it when you're not writing and you want to. Mm. One um, additional question for me, just because it's something that's popped up a couple of times in the interview I had with you before and during this one. You seem to have a very, very good memory for remembering people's books and remembering specifically titles of books and author names as well. Um, is that is that something that you've just always been quite good at? Because I, I am terrible for, for remembering. The minute I want to recommend something, I just cannot remember the name of it. It's so weird that you, t- you say that I've felt that my memory has been dying uh, with every year that goes by. <laughs> And it's, it's a bit of a worry to me. Um, I try my very best to remember the names of books and the people who write them, especially if I know who they are. And I feel just mortified when I can't. Mm. Um, I am the guy who meets you. You tell me your name. I immediately forget the name. <laughs> I didn't even listen. I was, looking at, I was looking at you mouth the words and I'm going, whatever. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Uh, this is me too. <laughs> I'm the same. It's, it's a terrible thing. I, I'm, I'm surprised that you, you're complimenting my memory. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, okay, right. So that is all the questions from the patrons. We're now going to go into our quick fire round, which is ten questions. I'll throw at you as quickly as possible. Feel free to skip if you need to. Um, it's all in fun. It doesn't mean anything because we're all going to die at the end of it. Not the end of these questions, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Westworld or Witcher. Uh, Westworld because I've seen it. Okay. Favorite TV show of all time? Uh, Breaking Bad? Yeah, Breaking Bad. Out of all of your own books, which is your favorite? I'd say Kick. Chinese or Indian? Uh, Crap. Indian. (laughs) Who was the last writer to make you laugh? Uh, Jim memory of things going to come back to kick. no there's just so there's so many people uh, Jim Butcher he always makes me laugh uh, worst film of all time worst film of all time mm-hmm. oh lord uh, it's uh, Torgo 
hand of fate. <laughs> nice. What's your preferred drink of choice? Uh, bourbon, preferably uh, Gentleman Jack. Oh, good choice. Uh, what's your dream holiday destination? Uh, I think Australia. I'd love to go to Australia. Hmm. Uh, is there a Christmas present you wished you got but never received? A pony. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite person in the whole wide world? My wife. <laughs> nice. uh, and one bonus question. Where can our listeners find out everything about you and all that you're working on? John-L-Monk.com is my website. I don't keep it up to date very often, but if I have any release, I'll, I'll put it there. And there's a link there for my newsletter. Perfect. And for those of you who haven't checked out the Chronicles of Ethan and all of John's other works, be sure to check those out. I'll put all the links in the show notes. John, thank you very much for joining me on the show. It's been a blast to catch up. Uh, thank you. And I'm glad I lived. <laughs> That's right. We'll survive for a little while anyway. Uh, yeah. Thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writers Share podcast. This week, I'd like to know from you what your optimum release schedule looks like. Is it one book a year? Is it 12 books a day? Let me know by tagging hashtag Great Writers Share on social media or popping a comment on the Facebook group. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writers Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwriterssshare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash greatwriterssshare. Until next time. <laughs>